Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lottie's Book Club. I am your host, Lottie, and on this show, I will be sharing different literature and stories that interest me for whatever reason it may be. I will start this episode by saying that I'm getting over a cold, so if I sound sick, it's because I am. Now, I usually read a lot of fantasy, but lately I've been interested more in books that make me think a little bit more, which I've been finding a lot in classic literature lately. It's kind of nice, though, if I want to escape out of my head and, you know, shut down, then I turn to fantasy. But if I want to analyze and think a little bit more, I can turn to the older works. I found this book when I was looking for some works that would be interesting to analyze and just talk about on the show. And I honestly think it's now one of my favorite novels that I've ever read. The messages behind it and the way the story carries out just took me entirely and really got the gears in my brain turning. This story is A Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, his one and only novel, and one that caused quite a bit of controversy in his own life. Now, in order to understand it, we must understand the author first. Oscar Wilde was an Irish author born in the year 1854 in Dublin. Wilde's work as an author comes as no surprise. His father was an eye surgeon, but published many pieces on folklore and archaeology. His mother was a renowned novelist as well, writing about folklore, poetry, and different Celtic myths. It's no wonder Oscar Wilde grew to be as renowned as he is, even if it occurred primarily after his passing. Oscar studied at Trinity College, Magdalen College, and the ever-so-famous Oxford. Oscar Wilde is most well-known for his novel The Picture of Dorian Gray, which was originally published on June 20, 1890 in the Lippincott's Monthly Magazine. Wilde worked as a critic for years before publishing, deeming that he finally got a chance to, quote, practice what he's been preaching. This novel, however, resulted in his coming downfall. On top of his work as an author, Oscar Wilde was an advocate for the aesthetic movement in England, which illustrated the point of creating art for, quote, art's sake. However, I'm not entirely confident in the fact that Oscar Wilde simply just wrote for the sake of writing, as this novel contains endless symbolism and mirrors Wilde's own secret double life. In fact, most of Wilde's most renowned works follow this theme of a double life and the pursuit of pleasure and desire. Now, he wasn't exactly the most beloved in his time. Wilde was viewed as the personification of the, quote, downsides of aestheticism, for the scholar's beloved views on art was deemed unmasculine. Those who followed this movement believed that art didn't need to be made for meaning and could just be looked at for its beauty. Wilde's thoughts on viewing beauty this way leak a little bit into the picture of Dorian Gray. A little ironic when it comes to viewing art and literature as beautiful rather than containing some hidden meanings. Of course, it wasn't just Wilde who was criticized for these views, but it was Wilde who tried to make light of his criticism. When two writers wrote a character into one of their plays inspired by him, a quote, fleshy poet, Wilde wrote a series of poems sharing his love for some poets he was inspired by. Afterward, well, he traveled a little bit, lecturing in America and Canada for 12 months before returning to England, sharing his impressions and experiences of the American ways. It was not just his work in the aestheticism movement that played at his downfall and critiques. It was Wilde's own double life. In society, Wilde was able to establish himself as an activist and, despite his critiques, a respectable and popular playwright. While working as a critic in the 1880s, Wilde married a prominent Irish woman, Constance Lloyd, who bore him two children, born 1885 and 1886. Despite being married and raising his two children, Wilde hid his double life from the public. 
This double life was at the hands of Lord Alfred Douglas, a British aristocrat who was also an author working more in poetry. Lord Douglas was 16 years younger than Wilde, their relationship starting in the 1890s, Wilde at 37 years old, Douglas at 21. This relationship would have been highly controversial at his time, less for their ages and more for the fact that it was two men. Homosexuality was strictly banned and illegal in England up until the 1960s and was viewed as a punishable crime. It's a little unclear if their relationship was a romantic one or if it was truly just a close friendship, but when I say a little unclear, I mean like a very little because it's pretty clear that they were in a relationship. But Wilde's downfall began when the Marquise of Queensbury, Douglas's father, accused Wilde of being a sodomite. One would wonder why he would do this if it may incriminate his son as well, but Lord Alfred Douglas didn't have much to worry about on that point being from a higher social class. Wilde's friends, aka those who knew of his sexuality, tried to convince Wilde to flee to France as homosexuality was outlawed in 1791. Or not outlawed, it wasn't outlawed anymore in 1791, so it was was legal in France by 1791. It's still outlawed in English at this point. Wilde, of course, refused and instead sued the Marquis of Queensbury for libel or defamation, but it was to no avail for the Marquis was able to improve in court Wilde's homosexuality. I use the phrase proof just to say that he was convicted and charged for homosexuality, not that it was factually true, although I do think he was. Not that it's a bad thing, just that it was punishable at that time in England. Queensbury's attorney was able to convince the jury that Oscar Wilde was a dangerous older man who coerced and pushed young men into romantic relationships. Wilde's plays, along with his one published novel, were used as evidence against him in court to show where his moral values laid and his pursuit for pleasure, along with some spicy letters that were sent from Wilde to Douglas. The first trial resulted in a hung jury, but the second trial ended in Wilde's imprisonment of two years' hard labor. Near the end of his imprisonment, Wilde wrote a letter to Lord Alfred Douglas titled De Profundis, which recalls the events that led to his imprisonment and also his spiritual journey while imprisoned and his eventual finding of Jesus Christ, ending with the letter with Your Affectionate Friend. Oscar Wilde was released after two years, living the rest of his life in exile in France, only living for three years following his release. Oscar Wilde passed from acute meningitis brought upon from an ear infection. As I said before, Wilde's writing contained lots of themes of the double life, perhaps writing these themes as a way of, you know, coping with his own. Written by Oscar Wilde, quote, To reveal art and conceal the artist is art's aim. It is the spectator and not life that art really mirrors. This is a big part of his one and only novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. The Picture of Dorian Gray is the perfect story of a double life and symbolizes the cost of our sins, the true sacrifice for pleasure being our deteriorating souls. This meaning is shown quite literally throughout the story. The main character is a young Dorian Gray who we meet during his regular meetings with Basil, a painter who has taken Dorian as his muse. When speaking to one of his friends, Henry, Basil states that, I see everything in him. He's ever more present in my work than when no image of him is there. He's a suggestion, as I have said, of a new manner. I find him in the curves of certain lines, in the loveliness and subtleties of certain colors. 
This conversation was brought about when Henry questioned Basil on why he was choosing not to display the painting of this man who we eventually learn is Dorian Gray. He speaks on how he's put too much of himself into it. Every portrait that is painted with feeling is a portrait of the artist, not of the sitter. It is not he who was revealed by the painter. It is rather the painter who, on the colored canvas, reveals himself. The reason I will not exhibit this picture is that I'm afraid I have shown in it the secret of my own soul. These kind of themes carry on throughout the novel. The idea that one's soul and the sins that wither away at it is a secret meant to be seen only by oneself. To live a life that is not double is to give all of yourself away. To deny yourself the sins and pleasures of life is to deny yourself life's truest desire. Those who do, artists and intellectuals, are boring and never truly live. We see this very thought in the differences between Basil and Henry. In fact, the characters around Dorian Gray help tell the true tale and meaning of this novel. Henry is the very essence and personalization of the double life. He's a married man who, just like his wife, partakes in the pleasures of others. He presents himself as a gentleman and lives out his desires in secrecy. His views on artists and intellectuals are very straightforward. They're boring, and they lack personality. One who gives himself entirely to his art has nothing left for himself, which goes back to Basil's point on why he isn't displaying the portrait he felt he put too much of himself into. As the intellectual gains more knowledge, he ages. The more one denies himself pleasure and lives only in unmet desire, the more he ages. He tells Dorian, We're punished for our refusals. Every impulse that we strive to strangle broods in the mind and poisons us. Refuse it, and your soul grows sick with the longing for the things it's forbidden himself. To Lord Henry, beauty is everything. To Basil, beauty is different in art and reality. Reality is art to Basil, where beauty is good. In real life, however, beauty is ugly. Beauty is the personification of desire, a man whose soul is intact and has little conscience. His views on Dorian's beauty, however, are different. Dorian to him is pure. Dorian's goodness is beautiful, and he's totally encompassed by him. But Dorian's goodness, however, grows tainted with each passing day after he meets Lord Henry. Dorian's introduction to Lord Henry was very much not intended. If anything, Basil couldn't have wanted literally anything less. He explains this to Henry while the two of them were talking about the painting, stating that when he likes people very much, he hardly enjoys to give out their names. He states, The commonest thing is delightful if only one hides it. When I leave town, I never tell people where I'm going. If I did, I'd lose all my pleasure. It's a silly habit, I dare say, but somehow it seeks to bring a great deal of romance into one's life. Lord Henry only comes to Dorian's acquaintance when the two meetings overlap. Lord Henry's visitation and Dorian Gray's daily drop by the studio. Basil's quite clear on how he wishes the Lord to go, but Henry insists, and Dorian as well once he's acquainted. Basil, not really turning into anything while he's painting, is completely obvious oblivious to the conversation occurring while he's painting his muse. I believe Lord Henry, however, came into this meeting with intentions. Have you really a bad influence, Lord Henry? As bad as Basil says? There is no such thing as a good influence, Mr. Gray. All influence is immoral, immoral from the scientific point of view. To influence a person is to give him one's own soul. He does not think his natural thoughts or burn with his natural passions. 
We'll come back to this point in a few minutes, but this is a big point towards the theme of the story when it comes to sharing one's own soul instead of keeping it to himself. But it's in this first conversation that we learn a lot about Henry's character. He speaks of society and how the aim of life is self-development, but most people nowadays are afraid of themselves, their true selves, that is. One who spends too much time on charity often forgets about themselves and their souls starve. The bravest man among us is afraid of himself. The mutilation of the savage has its traffic survival and the self-denial that mars our lives. We're punished for our refusals. Every impulse that we strangle broods in the mind and poisons us. The body sins once and has done with its sin, for action is mode for purification. Nothing remains then but the recollection of a pleasure or the luxury of a regret. The only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. Resist it, and your soul grows sick with longing for the things that's forbidden itself, with desire for what its monstrous laws have made monstrous and unlawful. He claims to see a little too far into Dorian, perhaps taking a peek at the soul he wishes to keep to himself, and shares how his beauty is untouched, but his mind fills him with desires for things he deems shameful and frightening. Dorian, at first, is not a fan of this, but like I said, at first. He took a few minutes to think, and the trio spent minutes in silence, Dorian's eyes seeming as if he's just awoken from a dream that lasted an eternity. Afterwards, Dorian asks the painting if he can sit down, and the pair go out into the garden and speak more over some tea. Here, Henry shares that, Nothing can cure the soul but the senses, just as nothing can cure the senses but the soul. Despite Dorian's quite unwanted awakening as a result of their last conversation, it is what Henry shares next that puts him in a tizzy. Beauty like Dorian's, unfortunately, will someday fade, and beauty can be genius in itself. It's the wonder of wonders that belongs to those who are blessed by the gods, but what the gods give, they shall someday take away. Dorian's beauty will only last a few years, thus he only has a few years to live fully and undoubtedly. The pair is soon called back inside. You are glad to have met me, Mr. Gray, said Lord Henry, looking at him. Yes, I'm glad now. I wonder, shall I always be glad? Perhaps some foreshadowing we see here. When Dorian sees the finished painting, he's enthralled. Not all positive feelings, though. He thinks back on what Lord Henry was telling him, how his beauty will one day fade. Wilde writes, the sense of his own beauty came onto him like a revelation. He'd never felt it before. He's thrusting into his thoughts, process revolving around himself, perhaps the one thing he never really thought to think about. Dorian's jealous of the painting for its ability to maintain its own beauty and youth when his will someday fade. He wishes for the picture to bear the deterioration of his beauty and the corruptions of life as he lives on. He cries, if it were I who was always to be young and the picture that was to grow old, for that I would give everything. This is where his feelings go from the usual innocent 20-year-old boy to a man who's awakened. His thoughts and emotions become more complicated. This is also the point of the story where we meet the main antagonist, the painting, but more specifically, Dorian's own soul. The story follows Dorian throughout his life, notably showing the influence both Lord Henry and Basil have upon him. The two can symbolize separate parts of Dorian's conscience. Basil being the parts of Dorian that are good, so the angel on his shoulder, and Lord Henry being the parts of him that are bad, the devil on his shoulder. 
When Dorian first visits Henry at his residence, we meet Henry's wife. When speaking of the opera, she says something that I took interest in. Ah, that's one of Hen Harry's views, isn't it, Mr. Gray? I always hear Harry's views from his friends. It's the only way I get to know of them. This goes back to Harry's earlier point of influence, how there's no good influence as influence requires giving away part of one's soul. I find it interesting. This goes to show Henry's own soul and it reinforces his beliefs on people, how the individual is not an individual at all, but two separate beings. In this example, there's Henry when he's with Dorian, aka the influences he's able to put upon him, and then there's the Dorian, or not the Dorian, the Henry that's around his wife. Perhaps there may even be a third part, Henry's true soul, the only one he gets to see. His own painting and corruption, if you'd put it that way. I would say that Henry's influence, although immoral in his own eyes, is purposeful. Throughout the novels, we see Henry note to himself and others about his interest in psychology. Henry views people not as moral beings, but as subjects. I would go as far as to say that Dorian's not truly a friend to him, but a subject, one for him to corrupt and watch where his influence takes him. In fact, in the same chapter, Henry tells Dorian that it's only sacred things that are worth touching. When Basil asks Lord Henry of an engagement, which I will soon cover, Lord Henry responds, I never approve or disapprove of anything now. It's abs an absurd attitude to take towards life. We're not sent into the world to air our moral prejudices. By taking no action, neither approving or disapproving, Henry is watching the effects of his influence over his subject. Basil, on the contrary, does see Dorian as a friend, although I would say it's more than a friendship, but I'll touch on that later. Basil, throughout the novel, tries to help stop Dorian from gaining influence from Henry, as we saw at the very beginning of the story. After this occurrence with Henry, we see Dorian starting to live his life for pleasure, he meets an actress at the opera whom he becomes quickly yet deeply infatuated with, Sybil Vane. Sybil Vane was a poor peasant girl living with her mother and brother, James, working at the opera as an actress. Her mother was an actress as well, though she's far off from her golden days. She also fell deeply in love with Dorian, despite not even knowing his name. Sybil only referred to him as Prince Charming. Wilde writes that she was, quote, free in her prison of passion. I found this phrasing quite interesting. Firstly, I can appreciate its, you know, poetic values, talking about love and how it's free but blinding. But I can't help to think that this personally is what Wilde was going through himself, despite not meeting Lord Douglas until the year after the novel's publishing. Perhaps Wilde was free in his own prison of passion throughout their relationship, one that eventually led him, sadly, into a real one. Her mother wasn't exactly too happy about this relationship, and neither was James. We soon, soon learn from a scene before James leaves on a ship to Australia that it's because James's father was a gentleman who soon left their mother. This led to a distrust towards Dorian, which I can't exactly say is displaced. James states, Don't forget that you will only have one child now to look after, and believe me that if this man wrongs my sister, I will find out who he is, Track him down and kill him like a dog. I swear it. Dorian winds up proposing to Sybil Vane, and that night, Dorian gets dinner with Lord Henry and Basil to share the news. Or more so, share the news with Basil, who had only now just found out through Lord Henry. This is where that statement of neither approving or disapproving comes from. 
He plans to take them to the opera that night, raving about Sybil Vane and her wondrous talents that made him fall for her. The way that Basil reacts to this engagement is quite interesting as he feels a sense of loss. Wilde writes, a strange sense of loss came over him. He felt that Dorian Gray would never be again to him all that he had been in the past. Life had come between them. Basil seems almost heartbroken, not only losing his dearest friend, but his muse. His muse had found that same very feeling that he finds himself in someone else, but the feelings that Dorian had were soon to be diminished. At the opera that night, Sybil Vane performed in a way that she never had before. Horribly. Her performance was awful. In fact, most people left before the show was even over, as did Basil and Henry as well. This breaks Dorian's passions, and as Henry says, both love and art are two forms of imitation. Perhaps Dorian was seeing in Sybil Vane only what he wanted to when she was on the stage. Dorian met her after the show to exchange some rather harsh words. You have killed my love. You used to stir my imagination. Now you don't even stir my curiosity. You simply produce no effect. I loved you because you were marvelous, because you had genius and intellect, because you realized the dreams of great poets and gave shape and substance to the shadows of art. You've thrown it all away. You're shallow and stupid. Perhaps Dorian has just failed to realize that she was simply acting before, doing what she had to do to, you know, make money and survive. This wasn't her passion. Sybil Vane wanted to escape, wanted to run away with him, but Dorian just wanted art, wanted something bigger than him. Regardless of what he wanted, he returned home that night after breaking up with her and sharing that he's never to see her again to find a rather peculiar sight. In the dim arrested light that struggled through the cream-colored silk blinds, the face appeared to him to be a little changed. The expression looked different. One would have said that there was a touch of cruelty in the mouth. This completely took Dorian aback. He immediately checked himself in a mirror and realized that it certainly is not how it appears. A bit relieving, but unsettling nonetheless. He started thinking about what could have caused this, and remembers his outburst at Basil's studio. How he wished he could remain in his youthful beauty, and that the picture could grow old and cruel instead. But it couldn't be true, it's a painting. Dorian then thinks back on his actions, perhaps for the first time in his life. He hadn't been cruel, it was Sybil Vane's fault that what had occurred had occurred. Wilde writes, Why should he trouble about Sybil Vane? She was nothing to him now. But the picture? What was he to say of that? It held a secret of his life and told his story. It taught him to love his own beauty. Would it teach him to loathe his own soul? Would he ever look at it again? Some more foreshadowing we see here in Dorian's thoughts. This is the first place in the story where Dorian is truly seeing himself. His very soul has been taken out of him and placed in this portrait. It's a true mirror. Wishing to look at it no longer, Dorian places a screen in front of the picture which he does not return to until the next morning, wishing to check if his senses were truly just betraying him the night before or if it was truly changed. And lo and behold, it was true. Here was a visible symbol of the degradation of sin. Here was the ever-present sign of the ruin men brought upon their souls. Having this thought, Dorian wishes to write things with Sybil Vane and stay true to his word to marry her. He will take no further influence from Henry's wrong ways. And speaking of the devil, you know, quite literally, the devil. 
Henry appears shortly after with some news for Dorian. He shares with Henry his realizations of how the conscience is the divinest thing among humans. Don't sneer at it, Harry, anymore. At least not before me. I want to be good. I can't bear the thought of my soul being hideous. He then shares his plans on making things right with Sybil Vane, wishing to marry her, very much to Henry's surprise. Dorian's taken aback when he hears the news. I have no doubt it was not an accident, Dorian, though it must be out in the way to the public. It seems that she was leaving the theater with her mother, about half past twelve or so. She said she had forgotten something upstairs. They waited some time for her, but she did not come down again. They ultimately found her lying dead on the floor of her dressing room. She'd swallowed something by mistake, some dreadful thing they use in the theaters. Yes, it's very tragic, of course, but you not, must not get yourself mixed up in it. I see by the standard that she was 17. I shouldn't have thought that she was younger than that. She looked like such a child and seemed to know so little about acting. Dorian, you mustn't let this thing get on your nerves. You've come and dine with me, and afterwards we'll look into the opera. It's a patty night, and everyone will be there. You can come to my sister's box. She's got some smart women with her. Lord Henry continues to share how good res resolutions are useless attempts to interfere with scientific laws, going back onto the, his whole point of the pleasure principle of life. As horrible as it is, this influence helps Dorian move on, but certainly much faster than he needed to. One moment, Dorian's crying over the blood that is seemingly on his hands, and the next, he's off to Lord Henry with his sister's box. The devil on his shoulder wins again. The picture remained as ugly and wrinkled as it was before, as if the change occurred right as Sybil drank that potion. Basil pays Dorian a visit the next morning in hopes of consolation, but finds that Dorian needs no consoling at all. Dorian being swept away by the wondrous singing at the opera and Henry's charming sister, rather than crying over Sybil Vane's corpse. Basil is extremely shocked. Dorian, this is horrible. Something has changed you completely. You look exactly the same wonderful boy who day after day used to come down to my studio to sit for his picture. But you were simple, natural, and affectionate then. You were the most unspoiled creature in the whole world. Now I don't know what's come over you. Dorian shares how he owes so much more to Henry and how Basil only taught him to be vain. But I personally think it was more Henry who taught him how to be vain. Yes, Basil praised Dorian for his purity and his beauty, but Henry made him realize the value of his beauty and has influenced his actions ever since. Henry, if I were to say, is the root cause of the degradation of Dorian's soul. Dorian scolds Basil for coming to console him, yet being furious when he's already been consoled. When Then we get a whole long speech from Dorian towards Basil, basically about how Henry's better than him and how Dorian's a changed man and how Basil needs to stop trying to persuade him to go back to being the young boy that he used to be. Kind of funny seeing how Dorian was literally just crying the morning before after taking a glimpse at his own soul over how he wishes to be good again. Anyways... To become the spectator of one's own life, as Harry says, is to escape the suffering of life. So essentially, remove yourself from every situation and you can't feel the effects. Pretty selfish way to go through life. I can't say I enjoy the man that Dorian's growing into. Basil has only one last request before he leaves, and it's to see the portrait. This sends Dorian into a tizzy. Basil wishes to display it. 
Dorian asked Basil what's changed. For only a month ago, he was very pushy about how it was Dorian's to keep and how he will never display the painting. Basil asks Dorian if he has noticed anything peculiar about the painting, perhaps hinting at its changes. But then we get a confession from Basil that leads us to believe it's about something else entirely. From the moment I met you, your personality had the most extraordinary influence over me. I was dominated, soul, brain, and power by you. You became the visible incarnation of that unseen ideal whose memory haunts us artists like an exquisite dream. I worshipped you. I grew jealous of everyone whom you spoke. I wanted to have you all to myself. When you were away from me, you were still present in my art. Of course, I never let you know anything about this. It would have been impossible. You would not have understood it. I hardly understood it myself. I only knew that I'd seen perfection face to face and that the world had become wonderful to my eyes. Too wonderful, perhaps, for in such mad worships there is peril and peril of losing them. The peril, perhaps, having Basil trapped in his own prison of passion. Now, I don't know about you, but this read a lot like a love confession. Basil uses it to explain that he once believed to have put too much of himself into the painting, too much of his soul when he painted Dorian, perhaps due to his feelings for him. He did not want the world to know about them, which is truly why he did not want the art to be explained. But he thought about it and believed that it's a mistake to think that his passion for Dorian can be shown through his paintings. Goes back to the quote from earlier about how it's the spectator and not life that art really mirrors. Which, by the way, is something I really fell in love with. As an artist and someone who, you know, dabbles in writing, I often feel like I can connect to pieces that really speak to me. It's why so many people, like, just buy art or they find things that they like and can connect to because art speaks to the spectator. It can, you know, be a way of expression for the artist as well, but it's the spectator who determines its meanings. Anyway, let's go back to Basil's seemingly love confession. In the original publishing of the story, Basil's confession is much more romantic than the one we now read. Oscar Wilde changed it so that it's more of a, quote, platonic interpretation. Here is what was originally published in 1890. And keep in mind, this is the same thing that I just read to you, but how it was originally written. It's quite true that I have worshipped you with far more romance of a feeling than man usually gives to a friend. Somehow, I never loved a woman. I suppose I never had time. Well, from the moment I met you, your personality had the most extraordinary influence over me. I quite admit I adored you madly, extravagantly, absurdly. I was jealous of everyone to whom you spoke. I wanted to have you all to myself. I was only happy when I was with you. When I was away from you, you were still present in my art. By replacing this with the previous confession I read, Basil's views on Dorian are seen more as a muse, a platonic love put into his art rather than a romantic one. A new confession to match the times of which it was written. It's quite sad when you think about it. Perhaps Wilde believed that he'd put, you know, too much of himself into Basil. In fact, the original published version was read in court in 1895 to be used against Wilde as evidence to show the picture of Dorian Gray as a, quote, perverted book. So, Wilde's writing of Basil's romantic feelings towards Dorian were used against him to prove his romantic feelings toward Lord Alfred Douglas. It's all very sad. Going back to the story, Dorian felt quite relieved by Basil's expressions of feelings. One, 
because Basil was still unaware of the paintings changing and Dorian's own soul, and two, because Basil stated that he would rather never see the painting again than never see Dorian, so he will most likely respect his wishes. Dorian soon wrapped the painting in a covering and had it moved to the attic, an old study room which he, and only he, now possessed the key to, a proper place to hide his ugly soul from onlookers. In order to distract himself from the decaying painting and Sybil Vane's passing, he reads a book that Lord Henry sent him, one that after reading he refers to as poisonous. He ends up being late to dinner with Henry for this very reason. I'm so sorry, Harry, but it's really entirely your fault. That book you sent me so fascinated me that I forgot the time was going. Yes, I thought you'd like it. I didn't say I liked it, Harry. I said it fascinated me. There's a great difference. This statement intrigues Henry. Ah, so you've discovered that. After these events, we get a long time jump, like years and years, and Dorian can't free himself from the fascination of this book, its plot being about the main character seeking the pleasures of centuries before him. Dorian basically decided to do the same, taking up many different interests, Jewels, fashion, music, history, anything that interested him, he devoted himself to entirely. Dishonorous rumors began to circulate about Dorian, but nobody believed them when they saw him, for he had the look of, quote, one who had kept himself unspotted from the world. Dorian would often look to the decaying painting, then at himself, finding a moment of joy in the contrast. Other times, it would sadden him to see the decaying of his own soul. Dorian was living a life of pleasure, and only pleasure. Dorian realized the sadness of the decaying, of the beauty that time inflicts on things. Dorian's pastimes and devotions were just a means of distraction for that very decaying of his own soul. For these treasures, and everything that he collected in his lovely house, were to be him means of forgetfulness, modes by which he could escape for a season, from the fear that seemed to him at most times to be almost too great to be born. Upon the walls of the lonely locked room where he'd spent too much of his boyhood, he'd hung with his own hands the terrible portrait whose changing features showed him the real degradation of his life. Despite his eagerness to forget and escape, whenever he was away from it for too long, fear would take over him entirely. Dorian was afraid that someone may enter the room, may see the horrid painting that lie before them, see his soul that he spent so much time trying to hide, see the true Dorian Gray. On the night of his 38th birthday, Dorian's walking down the street back to his place from Henry's when Basil seems to spot him. Dorian tries to ignore him, but Basil greets him anyways. He's going away to Paris for six months and wishes to say goodbye to Dorian, for he's not seen him in so long. Basil has things he wishes to ask Dorian, and to his own dismay, Dorian obliges and lets him in. <clears throat> Here we get another scene of Basil trying to console Dorian's conscience, to try and bring him back to the good side. Basil, as I said before, symbolizes the good side of Dorian's conscience, the angel on his shoulder. I think that Dorian not seeing Basil for a while also symbolizes him straying from, you know, the quote, good side of life. Dorian, in living his life strictly for pleasure, is falling deeper and deeper into cruelty's grasp. Basil confronts Dorian about the rumors he's heard. 
You, Dorian, with your pure, bright, innocent face and your marvelous, untroubled youth. I can't believe anything against you. And yet I see you very seldom, and you never come down to the studio now. And when I'm away from you, I hear all these hideous things that people are whispering about you. I don't know what to say. Why is it, Dorian, that a man like the Duke of Berwick leaves the room of a club when you enter it? Why is it that so many gentlemen in London will neither go to your house nor invite you to theirs? You used to be a friend of Lord Staveley. I met him at dinner last week. Your name happened to come up in conversation in connection with the miniatures you have let the, led to the exhibition at the Dudley. Staveley curled his lip and said that you might have the most artistic tastes, but that you were a man whom no pure-minded girl would allowed to know, and whom a chast is a friend of yours, and asked him what he meant. He told me. He told me right out before everybody. It was horrible. Why is your friendship so fatal to young men? There was that wretched boy in the guards who committed suicide. You were his great friend. There was Sir Henry Ashton who had to leave England with a tarnished name. You and him were inseparable. This goes on for some time and, you know, quite frankly, infuriates Dorian. Basil wishes that he could see Dorian's soul to know who he truly is. To see if he's the pure, innocent boy who he once knew. You shall see it yourself tonight. Come, it's your own handiwork. Why shouldn't you look at it? And with that, Dorian leads Basil up to the attic. Basil's rather confused, asking Dorian why he speaks such thing, but Dorian insists. You think that it's only God who sees the soul, Basil? Draw that curtain back and you'll see mine. So he does. Taken aback, Basil screams. In the portrait, Dorian's eyes were sodden and his throat shiveled in plastic. His hair was thinning, his nostrils were chiseled, and there was something cruel about him. Basil recognized his own handiwork but could not believe it. If you want a better visual of how the picture looks, look at the um, movie version. I believe it's from 1945-ish. And just look at the original portrait of Dorian Gray and then look at the portrait as it's revealed here and you'll you'll see the difference it's huge <laughs> basil grew clammy and afraid dorian reminds basil of the wish he made the fatal mistake dorian made so many years ago you told me you destroyed it i was wrong it's destroyed me basil's panic only grows this couldn't be the true dorian if it were all that he's heard about him must be true all the horrible rumors and wrongdoings, but it seems it is true. I worshipped you too much. I'm punished for it. You worshipped yourself too much. We're both punished for it. Basil begins to pray the Our Father, and Dorian realizes the mistake he made in showing Basil himself. He found himself hating Basil, for he created the thing that's ruined his life. The thing that has haunted him all these years. And in the spur of the moment, Dorian stabs Basil to death, killing the last part of goodness that lie in his soul. I like to believe that this symbolizes Dorian fully giving into cruelty and evil, trying to kill the good part of his conscience, and finally giving into the devil on his shoulder completely. The rest of his morals are gone. Dorian, rather than, you know, face the situation, decided to try and treat it exactly how he treated the death of Sybil Vane, erase it, and move on. If he faces what truly happened, he may brood over it and go mad. It will taint his pleasure. So he does just that. Dorian ended up blackmailing someone who he was once close with to dispose of Basil Howard's remains 
and then it was over for Dorian. Or so he thought. Despite his wishes to ignore it, it only seemed to grow bigger and bigger, perhaps acting as a mirror for our own lives. Ignore your guilty feelings for too long and they will swallow you whole. This is what ends up happening with Dorian. When he went to view the portrait again, red blood had appeared on its hands, creeping up the portrait. Wishing to get away from the guilt eating away at him, he escaped into an opioid den downtown that he would often escape to and attempt to, you know, numb his pain. Here he comes face to face with James Vane, Sybil Vane's brother. Wilde writes, In her dealings with man, destiny never closed her accounts. Vane spends the next few weeks hunting Dorian, who only grows madder and madder. A. The fear of death chasing him, and B. The guilt tearing him in shreds from the inside out. Vane ends up being shot when Dorian and Henry are out hunting with fellow gentlemen, and Dorian's quite relieved. Just as Sybil Vane's death had once changed Dorian's intentions back to good, so had James's. There's no use in telling me that you're going to be good. You're quite perfect. Pray, don't change. No, Harry, I've done too many dreadful things in my life. I'm not going to do any more. I began my good actions yesterday. Dorian shares that he's much tired of speaking about himself, yet it seems that when he asks of what's going on around town, people have began speaking of Basil's disappearance. Henry wonders whatever happened to Basil, and perhaps to lessen the burden of his own guilt, Dorian asks what he would say if he were to tell him that he murdered him. Henry shares that he would never believe it. Crime belongs exclusively to the lower orders. I don't blame them in the smallest degree. I should fancy that crime was to them what art is to us, simply a method of procuring extraordinary sensations. He then asks Dorian, What does it profit a man is he to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Dorian's perplexed by this. Why do you ask me that, Harry? He speaks of a street preacher he passed, asking that same question. I thought of telling that prophet that art had a soul, but man have not. Don't, Harry. The soul is a terrible reality. It can be bought and sold and bartered away. It can be poisoned or made perfect. There's a soul in each one of us. I know it. Don't be so serious. What have you and I to do with the superstition of our age? No, we have given up our beliefs in the soul. Perhaps this is the difference between Henry and Dorian. Henry doesn't believe in his soul and has been able to push it away for so long that he may have even forgotten about its existence. This is how he truly lives for pleasure. But Dorian is a prisoner to his soul. Ever since coming face to face with it, he's been eaten alive by its degradation and tainting. Perhaps Dorian was never truly successful in killing his conscience after all, for a small part of Basil still lives. Dorian returns to his home that night, thinking of James Vane, hidden away at Selby Graveyard. He thinks of the excitement over Basil, and thinks of confessing. He notes that, nothing that he could do would cleanse him till he had told his own sin. Hiding away his sins and soul in the attic, aka shoving his guilt aside from the world for only him to see, had not worked. It will never work. There was only one bit of evidence left against him. The picture itself, that was evidence. He would destroy it. Why had he kept it for so long? Once it had given him pleasure to watch it changing and growing old. Of late he had felt no such pleasure. It had kept him awake at night. When he'd been away, he had been filled with terror, lest other eyes should look upon it. 
it had brought melancholy across his passions. Its mere memory had marred many moments of joy. It had been like conscience to him. Yes, it had been conscience. He would destroy it. And so, in the darkness of night, Dorian picked up the same knife he once used to destroy Basil Halward and destroyed the painting. Crashing to the floor, two servants rushed to the attic. What they found was an old, crippled man lying dead on the floor, a knife embedded into his heart, and a young, beautiful portrait of their master hanging on the wall. Dorian had destroyed his soul, thus destroying himself. He was dead. I absolutely love this story. It literally shows how guilt, sin, and secrets can eat you alive. It's very easy to separate yourself from the situation how Lord Henry does and only live in the pleasure of it. This is the abandonment of the conscience. But for most people, no matter how hard you try to kill the conscience, it will always be a part of you that you cannot ignore. The more you push down your guilt, the more you live your life selfishly, the more it will eat you alive. It's a lesson that I believe Oscar Wilde wrote perfectly. I also love how he portrayed Basil and Henry with the influences they have on Dorian. Basil was always looking out for Dorian, not just as his muse, but as something he truly loves and wants to remain good. Henry viewed Dorian not as a true friend, but as something pure that he could influence and did until it caused Dorian to meet his own ends. Henry once said, It is only the sacred things that are worth touching. Lord Henry, being the devil on Dorian's shoulder, wanted to lead Dorian into a life of pleasure and sin, whereas Basil, being the angel, wanted Dorian to lead a selfless and pure life. As many of us would believe, life usually runs somewhere in the middle, a little bad, a little good. But as from another quote from Lord Henry, moderation is a fatal thing. Enough is as bad as a meal. More than enough is as good as a feast. Thus, this is how he influenced Dorian to live his life. It is extremely sad to think about how this novel not only was influenced by Oscar Wilde's own double life, but how it also helped result in his downfall. When the story was first published, it caused an outcry in society due to its, you know, presumed homosexual undertones. In the preface of the book, Wilde writes, There's no such thing as a moral or immoral book. Books are well written or badly written. That is all. A.K.A. It's the reader that books reflect, and not books' morals itself. The combination of these aesthetic beliefs and the homosexual undertones shown in the novel contributed to the eventual imprisonment and banishment of Oscar Wilde. I personally have gained a lot of respect for Wilde, and his story in this novel will always lie in a special place in my heart. I believe that Wilde's tale of romance and imprisonment is one of wrong place, wrong time, and if he were alive today, I believe he would have been much better off. And I hope we as a society continue to grow into a place of better acceptance for all people and people like Oscar Wilde. It's really sad to think about what he went through. But that's all I have today for the story of Dorian Gray. And now, oh, that rhymes. Now, on to book news. In some better news than I provided in the, you know, past episode, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill that will prevent California school boards from banning inclusive books. He states, quote, 
Remarkable that we're living in a country right now in this banning binge, this cultural plurge that we're experiencing all throughout America, and now increasingly here in California, where we have, we have school districts, large and small, banning books, banning free speech, criminalizing librarians and teachers. And we want to do more than just push back theoretically against that, and that's what this legislation provides. The bill was pushed against by conservatives who state that the bill silences the votes of locally elected school board members, but bill supporters have argued that book banning, quote, amounts to government censorship and the practice has a troubling history and association with dark moments in the past. So as opposed to a lot about what you might have seen about book bannings in the news recently, this is some good news. You know, we're getting some pushback against book bannings. So that's awesome. In book news. And that's all I got for you this week. Um, I do think it's really nice how we got some good news in there, especially after I was, you know, just talking about how I hope that the world can become a more inclusive and accepting place, which I do. I believe we're all good. I mean, I don't believe we're all good. That's a lie. But I feel like most of us are good and want to do good things. But that's all I got for you this week. I will see you all next week on Lottie's Book Club. And I hope you enjoyed this novel as much as I did. It will always hold a special place in my heart and on my arm because I'm literally getting a tattoo of it next week. (laughs) All right. Thank you all. Bye.